Everybody, well, it's good to see you. So some of you have been attending this Wednesday night class all last semester in the fall and have gone through all the classes this spring. And some of you, it's your first time. And so what we're doing this evening, so for those of you who've been along the whole entire time, this is going to be review. And so the notes that you have this evening are a brand new set of notes. Now, I know it feels thick. It's because the paper's thick. And there's a lot of pages. And I reduced 162 pages of notes down to 34. So you're welcome. So the aim this evening is I'm going to pray in a few moments to get us started and... Uh, we are not going to go over every single sentence and line in the packet of notes that you have. So I gave you more information so that you can take this home and read it and talk about it with people in your household. But we're going to hop, skip, and jump over some key things. So the first half is going to be thinking about the current cultural moment that we live in and understanding the things that you see on social media the things that you hear in class, the things that you read about, and more. And the second half of this evening is going to be moving very quickly over a um, high-flying understanding of what the Bible teaches about what it means to be human. So that's where we're going this evening. So I've got the notes on the screen overhead. You've got the exact same notes in your hands. Feel free to take notes. Uh, I will be taking questions along the way, not comments, but questions. I will take questions along the way, but there's going to be less questions during the class, but I'm going to stay for an hour after class to answer more questions in depth. So if you want to stay, you're welcome to do that. With that, let me go ahead and pray, and then uh, we'll, we'll begin to look at what it means to be human. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in a world that is described by you as dark, and in the dark, that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, and that by your grace and by the work of Jesus, who lived, died, and rose from the grave all on our behalf, that for those of us who have repented of our sins and believe in Jesus, your word we receive with joy, like treasure. It's a confusing time. Especially the younger you are, the more confusing it is to understand what it means and how to live in this world. And I pray that you would help all of us, especially the students among us, to think well and wisely about your word. So please, Father, magnify Jesus and the grace of his gospel in this place. Give us strength and courage and outfit us with your word. And in doing so, let us rejoice in you and help each other know and follow you. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said... Amen. So we live in a world where when God says in his word that there's only two sexes, two biological sexes, male and female, and that gender corresponds with that biological sex, we live in a world that says, nope, that that's not true. We live in a world where when the Bible says that sexuality is exclusively for Christian marriage, well, expressed in biblical marriage would be a better way to say that, I'll explain it later. When the Bible says that sexuality is exclusively for biblical marriage, 
the world says, nope. When the Bible speaks of biblical marriage and speaks of responsibilities of the household, roles in the household, purposes of the household for a husband and wife, a mother and a father, and for children, the world says, no. It rejects what the Bible has to say regarding biblical marriage, the household, parenting, and more. So we live in a moment where, unlike any other time in human history, the world has no idea what it means to be human. And the world has no idea what it means to be male and female, or a man and woman to be masculine or feminine. And as I prayed a moment ago, the younger you are, the younger you are, the more confusing it is about what it means to be all the things I just spoke of. That's what this class is about. It's not just taking some academic look about what it means to be human. We actually want to think about what God says and how that intersects with, well, what we see on Instagram and TikTok, YouTube, what you hear in class, what you see at the university, and more. So to begin with, our foundation as Christians is the Bible. The Bible is our foundation. The Bible is the source of authority. So if we were to go out on the street, if uh, on Father's Day is coming up in a couple Sundays, and the day before Father's Day is the first annual Pride Parade in Flagstaff. And so if we were to go get microphones and go interview people in the parade, or anybody, but let's just take that moment and begin to ask well, when you say that you can be whatever gender you want, or when you say these different things, how do you know that's true? When you ask someone a question, how do they know it's true? They have to make an appeal to authority. And ultimately, they're going to appeal to themselves or what the multitude thinks. We as Christians appeal to God's word. And so this is very important to be reminded of. And so if you look at your very first page, we're not going to go through depth on this, but you can just see these different verses describe what the Bible says about itself. The Bible is not man's opinions about God. The Bible is not man's hunches and speculations about God. The Bible is not a window that we try to look through to find God. The Bible itself is the verbal presence of God. It is inspired so it's trustworthy and true, it's authoritative, it's sufficient. We don't need other stuff. We need the Bible. The Bible's the true story of the world and how we make sense of what's wrong with the world and what will make it right. That's what the Bible is. And so as Christians, we look to the Bible. We don't need the sciences to teach us what the Bible means. We don't need social sciences to teach us what the Bible means and more. And again, by way of reminder, here's something that's important. Scripture forewarns us to be on guard against the world's destructive and damning false beliefs. For example, 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 and following. For we walk in the flesh, for though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. What does that mean? 
Well, it's verse 5. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. We live in a world in which it's a war of ideas. And Paul's description here in 2 Corinthians 10 is that this war of ideas is the Bible versus whatever men and women can scheme and conjure up and try to get a bunch of people to believe. And so we use biblical arguments against every lofty opinion. In Colossians, we're told in verse 8 of chapter 2, see to it that no one takes you captive. Did you know that it's possible, he's even talking to Christians here, that Christians can be taken captive. What, what does that mean? Well, he says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, not according to Christ. So as we go through this class and we talk about these different things this evening, what I'm suggesting to you is that the Bible is telling us that this is actually waging war against worldly ideas and these ungodly ideas are seeking to take all of you, all of us, captive. Young or old and everyone in between, the world is always seeking through its ideas and ideologies and philosophies and more to take Christians captive, to get us distracted from the gospel, to get us distracted from the totality of the Bible, and to look to other things to explain the world. And 1 Timothy 6 tells us to avoid irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. So I'm showing this because the Bible is our authority, and part of the Bible's authority is it warns us. Every single moment, every time you turn on a device, there are empty philosophies trying to take you captive. That's not a conspiracy theory. That's what the scripture just told us. And so when you're scrolling along and pausing to read or listening to a short or whatever it is, there's ideas that are give, being given to you about what's right and wrong and how to be in this world, and they're trying to take you captive. And Jesus wants us to know the truth, and he forbids us from working against him. So whatever Jesus calls sin, we have to call sin. And whatever Jesus calls true and right and beautiful, we have to call true, right, and beautiful. A Christian can't call true, right, and beautiful what Jesus says is sin. That Christian or that church can become a false church. If you guys didn't get notes, all the notes are up here or at the sides over there. So just by way of summary, the Bible self-consciously presents itself to us as the true story of the world, as the source of all truth to believed, treasured and obeyed for all of life and every area of life. That's going to include gender, sexuality, marriage, the household, and more. Thank you. But the question is, what does the world say? 
What does the world say? So picking up on page two, here's the question. Who or what has the authority to define and decide what it is to be human? Was well, Christians, it's the Bible. That's what I just explained. That's the argument that was just explained. But if we were to go outside or if you were to ask me before I became a Christian at the age of 21 when I was in college, if you were to ask me who or what has the authority to define or decide what is to be human, I'd probably say science or something along those lines. So if you were to go out and interview people at the Pride Parade coming up in two weeks, I think here are some examples of different things that people would appeal to. And here's why I'm telling you this. If you are uh, going to public school, if you are at NAU, if you are having lunch with a coworker, and you're going to begin to get into a conversation about what it means to have a biological sex and gendered and more, they're going to be appealing to an authority for their truth, as it were. Where are they getting it from? So a lot of people are going to point to the academy. That's a fancy way of saying school, of, of university, which you've heard me call before the secular seminary. So what, what do I mean by that? So right here, secular means attitudes and assumptions and actions that have no religious or spiritual basis. So we live in a culture that says there's a such thing as sacred and secular and that the world and school and politics and everything is secular. There is no God in it. And then you're supposed to compartmentalize and church is what you do on Sunday, maybe what you do around the dinner table with your family as you talk about Jesus. What does the Bible say? The Bible says, or rather implies, there is no such thing as secular. Because Romans 1 tells us all people are worshipers. So when a politician is making a decision to vote, when a teacher is deciding on what to teach, at root, there's no such thing as secular. Everything is religious to the core. Read Romans 1.16 and following. That means that every field of human inquiry is theological. So why does math exist? Because God does. Why does science exist? Because God does. And he is the inventor of truth and creator of those things. So all mathematical study should be done with the end of worshiping God. So when I call the university a secular seminary, what it's doing is it's teaching students, such as myself, when I went to do my undergrad, that whether I studied philosophy or anthropology or psychology, or sociology, or political science, legal studies, economics, environmental geography, and history, when you go to school, all those subjects are taught that God doesn't matter, God doesn't exist, God is not involved in any of those things. That's what I mean by secular seminary. So some people say, when you get into a conversation, is there such a thing as a woman? What is a woman? Or what is a man? And someone says, no, there is no such thing. They're going to appeal perhaps to schooling or something along those lines. What else might someone appeal to? They might appeal to the culture. So 
Culture, what is that? It's the shared institutions, schools, um, political institutions, intuitions, and patterns of life that shape a people. So sometimes people don't go to school and they're not going to appeal to, well, my professor taught me these things, that there's no such thing as gender or biological sex or they're, they're different. But other people will just appeal to culture. For example, go down to page four. Right below where it says Karen and OK Boomer. You can read those on your own because we're moving quickly. So I do want to take some questions. So I'm going to give you an example. Here's an example of where there's things that you just kind of pick up from living in the world. And that means that it's the stuff you listen to on the radio, uh, Spotify, excuse me, or whatever. So how about this? How about Disney? Disney generates culture. So, so look at this. Disney celebrates, this is their words, exploring queer stories. This is an article dated from March of 2022. The corporate president of, of corporate president, Carrie Burke, wants a minimum of 50% LGBTQIA and racial minorities in all the Disney movies. Every single thing that Disney produces, whether it's a live production or cartoon, moving forward, 50% of the characters are to be LGBTQIA. The production coordinator, Alan March, has created a tracker to make sure they are creating enough, quote, gender non-conforming characters, canonical trans characters, a thing about the new character in Mandalorian, for those of you, for the two of us that watch it, and canonical bisexual characters. The diversity inclusion manager, Vivian Ware, says the company has eliminated all mentions of ladies, gentlemen, boys, girls in its theme parks in order to create, quote, that magical moment for children who do not identify with traditional gender roles. Think about all the things that Disney owns. Think about all the content that Disney produces, all the Marvel movies, all the Star Wars, um, and more. All the things they're producing, all those old tales, Everything moving forward from now on is going to have all of these characters. Now, what about our kids? Our kids love Disney. Uh, Halloween, when kids go out, when they dress up, what they dress up as? The superheroes, the Marvel superheroes, or Disney princesses, or some other character. So moving forward, being unawares, that means that Disney is creating culture through watching these movies that tear down guards, endure your heart to watch these characters and like the story and more, and so then it desensitizes you. So that's an example of culture. The definition of grooming, by the way, grooming is when someone builds a relationship of trust and emotional connection with a child, every Disney character they watch and laugh at and enjoy or a young person, so they can manipulate, exploit, and abuse them. 
You can note also how the Marvel Universe right now is being rebooted, but it's being rebooted by replacing all the male superheroes with the equivalent female uh, superheroine who is going to replace him. And so you have She-Hulk and Batgirl and on down you go. Same thing with the feminist reboot of the last three Star Wars movies. So if you watch the last three Star Wars movies, especially the second to last one, what it does is it it's, it's tells you that um, men created the problems and women have to fix them. It's actually some of the dialogue in the beginning of that, uh, the second, what, number, set, number eight, if you've watched it. Well, what's interesting is that the women, whether it's the Marvel superheroes or the Star Wars characters, the women have the same function and standing as the men, yet superior. So there's nothing that is feminine, especially about them, per se. They're more masculine in what they do. They tend to be the loner, not be married, not have children, and they're going to go out and save the day and fix what the men broke. So when people, so creating culture, so when someone says there's no such thing as, as uh, gender and biological sex are not related, and you ask them why, they might not be able to explain it other than growing up watching Disney movies. Or roles of men and women in the church and household while watching Disney movies. That's an example of how culture can, can teach. We'll go past drags, Drag Queen Story Hour. And we're going to go, um, we're going to talk about the cultural zeitgeist. Zeitgeist is a fancy word, so this is page, what page is this? Page five. We're going to go through this portion and then I'll take some questions. Zeitgeist is a German word that means spirit of the age. It's all the isms. So again, who or what gets to decide what marriage is? Who or what gets to decide what biological sex is? Who or what gets to decide those things? So there's the academy, there's the scientists and professors, and they tell us what to think. We've just looked at one sample of culture, and it's the songs we listen to and the movies we watch. So here... This idea, it's philosophical, but this is about the ideas that kind of float around. If you study history, you know that at different eras, hundreds of years ago, and then hundreds and hundreds of years ago, people thought differently. People acted differently. So we call that the spirit of the age. Well, what's going on with the spirit of our age? As the example, I want to talk to you about my neighbor's lawn sign. So maybe you've seen these signs, they're in rainbow colors, and it's in this house we believe. If you have seen that lawn sign somewhere, raise your hand. Almost everybody. So here's what's amazing, is your neighbor, unless they're flying the flag, they, pl they plant it right there in the lawn, in this house we believe. Here's what's interesting. That phrase, we believe, is this old Latin word called credo, which I believe. And the church, for the past 2,000 years, especially in the early centuries, 
our, gra- our grandfathers in the faith wrote really succinct, beautiful statements about who Jesus is, what the gospel is, what we need to be- be- believe to be saved, and they're called creeds because they begin with, I believe, or we believe. So this is a modern-day creed of what I think is true, right, and beautiful. And just to go through it quick, I'll, I'm going to read it all, and then I'll circle back, and we'll talk about it. So the neighbor's lawn sign says this. In this house we believe, black lives matter, love is love, women's rights are human's rights, transgender women are women, science is real, and all are welcome. Or some iteration of that, depending upon who made it. Now, for most of those, most of those, if you just walked by and glanced at it and saw the phrase, love is love, you'd think, well, yeah, of course. Uh, or when you see the phrase, um, women's rights or human's rights, you would think, well, who could possibly deny that? And so here's the thing. Each of these statements, well, most of them, they're a Trojan horse. And the Trojan horse is, it looks fancy and nice, it looks interesting, but inside it is a whole bunch of bad guys, a whole bunch of bad ideas. It's those empty philosophies that we read about at the very beginning. See to it that, takes you, that no one takes you captive by empty philosophies. And I think a lot of Christians, without doing the research and knowing what's behind these statements, might agree with it ride it on the side and walk down the street, not recognizing that they're actually propagating anti-Christ ideas and that a Christian has no place to support any of these. Let me explain. Black Lives Matter. How can you possibly disagree with that statement? It is absolutely true. And then you can't say all lives matter because that's considered racist. But for this, this point right now, Black Lives Matter, but what we, if you look up in your notes at the top of page five, I have a series of screenshots from the hashtag Black Lives Matter movement dated from June 6, 2020, before they changed their website. And you could go to their website, and they had basically a doctrinal statement on their website. So when you walked around, not you, when someone walked around saying Black Lives Matter, put the hashtag, put the image up on the Instagram account, on Facebook, or whatever it was, here's what was being virally spread. So this is, this is the top of page five. Quote from their website, we are self-reflexive and do the work required to dismantle cisgender privilege and uplift black trans folk. So if you're not familiar with the phrase or the word uh, cisgender, cisgender is a new word invented by progressives to mean that you simply think that if you're a biological male, you're a male. And if you're a biological female, you're female. But the Black Lives Matter movement wants to dismantle cisgender privilege. So if you're straight and you identify with your biological sex, they want to dismantle that. That's what the movement's about. And conversely, uplift black trans folks. Next, number two, we build a space that affirms black women and is free from sexism, misogyny, which is contempt for women, and environments in which 
men are centered. Number three, we dismantle the patriarchal practice that requires mothers to work double shifts. Number four, we disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure. Just pause there for a second. Do you see why they exist? They want to disrupt. Uh, think how uh, terrorists want to disrupt a society. They want to disrupt, fancy talk, Western prescribed nuclear family structure. What does that mean? That means mom, dad, children. And the mom is straight, and the dad is straight, and they both conform to their biological sex. It's how humanity has worked for all humanity. And their aim is to dismantle that. They don't want a nuclear family of mom and dad. They don't want the husband and wife. And notice how it's called Western prescribed. That's code for it comes from the Bible. And then fifth, from their website, we foster a queer-affirming network. When we gather, we do so with the intention of freeing ourselves. They're intentional about being free from the tight grip of heteronormative thinking, meaning the way that you think. That men are men, women are women, and men and women get married and have children. They want to free themselves from that tight grip. Why? Because it's oppressive and you have to overthrow it. So, so go back down then. So it, on page five, when the sign says Black Lives Matter, the satanic brilliance of that Trojan horse is it's absolutely true as a statement. But then when you get into the actual movement, it's all of those things. So then if you say that you're not for Black Lives Matter, what do you sound like? A racist. So that's where the satanic brilliance comes in. That's why it's a Trojan horse. Okay, next. Oh, by the way, the, the hypocrisy is that black lives matter except in the womb. And it's less so for black straight males. It's also not true. Black lives don't matter if a black person embraces a biblical worldview and then a cultural hegemony. We'll talk about what that weird word means, which means then that if a, uh, any person of color embraces Jesus and the Bible, they're considered a cultural sellout because it's all considered white and whiteness and more. So then if you disagree with the statement, black lives matter, if you disagree with that, the degree that you disagree proves your bias, your racism, your privilege, and your oppression. Okay, so again, who gets to define what it is to be human? The neighbor's lawn sign wants to define for you what it means to be human. Uh, maybe it's in a classroom. Love is love. Love is love. How can you disagree with that? Well, it's code for celebrating and being an ally. That is a key word. Of being an ally of all things LGBTQ+, especially gay marriage, which now is expanding into throuples, polyamory, open relationships, group marriage, and more. So love is love is going to be a hyperlink text that you click that's going to take you to any way that any people can think of somehow, quote-unquote, being married. That's what love is love means. 
So if you don't support love is love, clearly you're a hater. But you can see the trap. Women's rights are human's rights. This is an exclusive code for celebrating and being an advocate for on-demand abortion as a women's health issue, on-demand abortion at any stage of pregnancy, and her reproductive rights. And then the irony is, women's rights are human's rights, except no one can define what a woman is. Our Supreme Court justice, one of them. Uh, women's rights are human's rights, except for the woman in the womb. She has no rights. And if you disagree with this, you are simply branded a misogynistic religious zealot. Which is what one of the NAU professors said uh, at the city council meeting when they passed the We Love Abortion statement. Uh, and when the NAU professors got up and talked about how we are a minority sect of religious zealots. Transgender women are women. It's interesting that there's, you hardly ever hear trans men are men. So ladies, the guys are still keeping you down. Code for one's felt identity as the basis of truth and reality, not one's physical, gender, or biological sex. Even when it comes to sports and bathrooms for, quote, male-bodied people. And then science is real. And that's code that anyone who rejects the mainstream narratives on masks, vaccines, climate change, and then you're going to add to that the psychology of gender. So science is real. So if you don't say science is real, you also are an ignorant religious zealot. So science is real except when it comes to basic biology. And science is real except when it comes to gender. Science is real except when it comes to babies in the womb. Science is real except when science challenges the narrative. To disagree proves you're a conspiracy theorist, which are simply spoiler alerts. You're an ignorant, deplorable, and religious zealot. And then finally, the sign says, all are welcome. Uh, I think this is at REI. Races, ethnicities, religions, countries of origin, gender identities, sexual orientations, abilities and disabilities, spoken languages, and ages. That's a sign I, I came across. REI is, is, has part of that. So all are welcome, unless you love God, guns, and country. Then you're a right-wing extremist, racist, Christian nationalist, especially a right Christian male. So everyone's welcome as long as you agree with the sign. And if you, don't disagree, if you disagree with the sign, you're not welcome. And you're canceled and shouted out and, and more. So I want to take a moment and pause there. We went through a lot of stuff. The Bible is our foundation. The Bible warns us that there are empty philosophies even seeking to take Christians captive. Then we move to the question, who gets to decide or define what a human is? And I gave a few examples. School, professors, scientists, academics, or culture, Disney, or our neighbor's lawn sign. 
uh, any questions um, that would be beneficial for the whole group, you think? Questions? So right now I'm dealing with someone in my family who is a parent and their children, her daughter, is advocating for a bunch of uh, anti-gun stuff like, and stuff like that. And right now, you know, we're, she's like one of the few family members that we get along with, but she's not, she's not raising her children Christian, as Christian as they should be, because her daughter's going to these anti-gun protests. She's surrounding herself in these public school Californian children, you know, completely, completely being brainwashed. And the mother's not doing anything. So how, how are we supposed to tell our family members and say, hey, you're putting your religion, you're putting your politics and trumping your religion with, with politics. Because she said, she said, I don't believe in, in gay marriage, but they should have the right because it's America. You know, she has that kind of attitude. How do you deal with someone like that? And what's, what do you think is the best way to approach a family member in that way? A very defensive family member. <laughs> yeah, so that's a, it's a good question. I can only answer that quickly and generically. There's there going to be specific cases. The first thing is prayer. Every night. Because the Lord is the only one who can change a heart. Secondly, humility. We need to be humble and not combative. We need to be armed with the gospel of grace. Um, and if the person is a believer that I'm talking to, then I'm going to open scriptures and say, for example, in John 14, Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And he who does not love me does not keep my commandments. That's the simplest place to go to. And, and um, with as much humility and grace as I could, I'd ask them, if they're a believer, where do you think that, what, what does Jesus want for you? Mm -hmm. And have them read those, those verses. And then begin to talk about, it's a longer conversation to help them connect that you don't let a child make choices in that children don't self-parent, they need parents to parent. But just generically, generically, prayer, humility, gospel of grace. Yeah, any other questions? Any other questions on biblical authority, taking thoughts captive, or where people might seek to source authority from? Hi, Dave. Um, just a quick question on the Black Lives Matter. You mentioned that was a screenshot from 2020. Did they, did that change? Is there something more updated or different? Yeah, they, um, that was right when it was exploding all over the news and you had all the controversy erupting. And so I screenshotted their, those, that's their doctrinal statement. They've since pared it down and removed anything that was uh, seemingly, they removed most things that were seemingly uh, culturally compatible, and so it reads it read differently now. I haven't visited since all the stuffs come out and how they embezzled money and things like that. And um, there's all the evidence points to that their beliefs and purposes didn't change, rather their um, subversive approach to dismantle went more underground once it was getting called out. Yeah, good question. Any other questions before we move forward? All right. Good questions. So we're talking about this strange thing called the cultural zeitgeist. Remember, it's the spirit of the age. I have to use fancy words. There are a bunch of isms. 
and they're really important. These isms explain um, why people think the way they do, though people don't realize um, the reasons why they think the way they do. What does that mean? Let's find out. We live in an age what's called postmodernism. So have you ever heard this phrase? Have you ever heard someone say your truth and my truth? If you've heard someone say your truth and my truth, raise your hand. That's postmodernism. So the idea of postmodernism is that there is no overarching explanation for the world. So the Bible is not the Bible. The Bible is rejected. They're going to say that truth is relative and it's defined by groups of people. And now it's defined by whoever's in charge. So truth becomes relative. That's what postmodernism is. So whenever you hear someone say, you do you, you live out your truth, speak your truth to power, that's all the notion that truth is what I get to invent, what I get to experience, and because of that, well, your truth claims is your truth, but I'm going to go live my truth. And so if, if you want Jesus, that's good for you, but I'm going to go do what's good for me. That's the postmodern idea, that there's no overarching truth to explain the world. But not only is it in the, uh, postmodern, it's also individualism. Have you heard the phrase, you do you? Yes. Thank you. So we all have heard the phrase, you do you, and the idea then is that we in the West, unlike Eastern cultures, even uh, Native American cultures, which are more communal in nature, Westerners are hyper-individualistic. In the end, we view oneself as the ultimate authority. Not God, it's me. And it's, well, what I feel. We're holding to none. We reject authority that we don't agree with. Individualism says the most authentic you is the you that does not care about anyone else's opinion, but unashamedly flaunts yourself for all to see. Right? What's the authentic self? You're supposed to be an authentic self. So whatever you feel on the inside, if you're not living it on the outside, well, then you are somehow oppressed or you need to come out the closet, whatever the deal is. And then the other thing about this age is it's subjectivism. Have, have you ever heard someone else say, well, I feel that, and then they say something? Shake your heads, yes. Almost all of us talk that way. So we live in a, we know, people don't say, well, I think that this is true. People say, I feel that we should do this thing. I feel that, so just listen. You've, some of you have heard me harp on this. But people say, I feel that, then they make a truth claim. And so notice what happens. Not only is your truth and my truth, you do you, but now it's I feel that. So all truth claims, thoughts, attitudes, opinions are prefaced by a person saying, I feel that. Then a person makes a claim. And since the claim is grounded in their feelings, you can't argue with them, right? Because they feel it. You can't argue with a feeling. You can argue ideas, 
So if someone says that I, I, am, I am a woman trapped in a man's body, I feel that I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. You can't, you can't argue with that because it's a, it's a feeling. So we live in this subjective age, and then we also live in a materialist age. Some are going to say there's no such thing as a spiritual world. It's only chemicals, electrical impulses, social engineering. We came from animals. We are animals. We're going to die as animals, and we're going to cease to exist. So there's no morality. There's no story of the world. There's no morality. So it doesn't matter what you believe, and it doesn't matter what you do because there's no consequences because when you die, unless you break the law and get put in prison or get super sick from a disease... Otherwise, it doesn't matter because you do you. But at the same time, there's people who believe that we're just animals and there's no moral consequences. There's also people who have a new age spirituality. And, the new, and this is all fancy, fancy words. Neo-paganism, neo-gnosticism, and monism. So I'm, I'm just giving you your money's worth tonight. So, so neo means new, and paganism is typically associated with um, animal and element worship. Um, Celtic religions, Norsk religions, Native American religions. Neo-Gnosticism is an ancient uh, belief um, that, that the spiritual world is good and the physical world is bad. And so that if you can free your spiritual self, that's the true you. The, the outside you doesn't matter. The inside you is what matters. And, and monism is a really fancy word to basically just think oneism. And it's this idea that um, all is one. We live on Mother Gaia Earth. It's one living symbiotic system. And that we are, it's, it's when the actors in the show say, well, the universe told me, or the universe, you certainly hear that phrase used, right? So God is removed, and now the universe provides things. Monism is all is one, and that's the difference between Christianity. Christianity is, is uh, think, two-ism, meaning creator-creature distinction. There's a difference between what's created and creatures. So these ideas are what's floating around. Someone may not know to say postmodernism. You don't need to know the fancy words, which you need to stop and think. When someone says, I feel that, and then they make a truth claim. So we go, we go to the pride parade on that Saturday, and when we start asking people about their decisions, you're going to hear, well, I feel that, and then there's going to be an explanation. Just recognize that when you talk to somebody, where those ideas are coming from. And more. One last one. This is the hot button topic. The hot button topic is neo Marxism and critical theory. If you've heard of either of those, raise your hand. Okay, that most of you. What is this? Without going into all the details, because there are many. If you've heard of diversity, equity, and inclusion, raise your hand. Okay, if you've had training in diversity, equity, and inclusion, raise your hand. Yeah, there's, 
Uh, if, you, if you work in this world, you're going to get training. Have you heard of intersectionality? Some of you, okay. W what are these ideas? You, you hear them on the news now. You kind of hear critical theory a bit, neo-Marxism. What's this idea? So just briefly, all of these interrelated ideas are sourced and grown in American academics since just after post-World War II. German scholars came over, they got into our schools and began to teach what is called critical theory. And critical theory, in between those two words, critical and theory, you can insert the word legal or critical legal studies. Most of us probably have heard of critical race theory, CRT. There's critical social justice. There's critical feminist theory, critical LGBTQ plus theory. All of these ideas, what in the world is going on? This is an alternative explanation for the world. Critical theory and the guys who left Germany and came to America in World War II were all students of Marx. And they changed his teachings. So Marx taught that there is no God. And he taught that the Bible is false. And he taught that what's wrong with the world is oppressors and oppressed. And he thought economically. And so he invented communism. And it killed hundreds of millions of people. Because the, those who are oppressed economically need to overthrow those who are the oppressors. Well, the students of Marx, a generation or two later, took his ideas and made it social. Whatever pe people group is in charge, whoever the majority is, they called it the um, hegemony, the cultural hegemony. And the idea here is that well, the fundamental and overlapping belief, the chief sin of society is oppression in some form or another. Salvation comes from the liberation of the oppressed by the oppressor. The oppressed need to be empowered. The oppressed need to speak truth to power. Have you ever heard, have you ever looked at the magazine covers and, uh, empowerment I mean don't you can't shop at Target anymore but when you used to be able to shop at Target and you would see it's all empowerment stuff on the clothing things along those lines. why are they talking about empowerment it's because there needs to be speak truth to power there's this idea that someone who is in charge as I said oppresses so let's keep going and this will kind of fit together, and I can take some questions before we take a break. Critical theory, um, in, its, in its wild form, just in the public, not in the academy, is activist in nature. So if Marx was about revolution and overthrowing those who had economic power, they've changed the language from revolution to activism. So how many of you have been on social media or in some way, um, when you, when you, um, if you, on YouTube, you can go to REI's YouTube and they'll have like different classes on how to pack your backpack 
And someone's teaching you how to back, pack your backpack. And the reason they're, they're doing it is it's going to describe them that they're like a through hiker and an activist. You'll, you'll notice that, that the word activist is now a descriptor of people. It's going to be in their uh, bios, things along those lines. Why? Because critical theory teaches that there's sexual oppression where straight people oppress LGBTQ plus people. And you need to be an ally and be an activist for LGBTQ plus people or insert race or insert fat studies or insert feminism or insert whatever minority group can be come up with. And you have to be an ally and activist to help not just, well, to overthrow the idea that there's somehow um, LGBTQ plus is, is not right. Until you actively and vocally engage in work to undermine and overthrow the oppressors, you remain an oppressor or a puppet of the oppressed. Okay? Have you heard this phrase? Silence is violence. Yes. Silence is violence. That's what this comes from. It's the catchy tune that if you say, well, yeah, I, um, I, I, uh, uh, I agree, uh, let's say someone says, well, I agree with same-sex marriage, I'm just not going to promote it. Well, they're going to say, your silence is violence, and you remain an oppressor, and you're not an ally until you vocally and are an activist and protesting for LGBTQ plus marriage or something along those lines. So this, this topic that we're talking about is what's the current cultural moment idea. Uh, intersectionality, this is the belief that the more markers of oppression a person has, the greater their voice and truth should be. So remember the individualism? Remember postmodernism? Your truth, my truth, you do you? Intersectionality is an idea born out of critical theory studies that... All women, for example, have an intersection against men. Men inherently oppress women. So women have one intersection. They have one degree of truth men don't have, and women should speak truth to the power of men. But if you are a black woman, you have an intersection against white women. So you have two intersections. But then it just gets crazy. Depending upon how you identify LGBTQ+, and more and more on down it goes. So basically, the more oppressed you are, because people say, Christians say, well, that's sin or whatever, the more truth you have, and therefore, you should be elevated to the microphone, and you should be telling everybody what's up, and you should be the one who is actually in, empowered so that you can disempower those who are the majority. And that is the cultural ideas flowing around. What all these various and diverse groups share in common is that they're the enemy of the cultural hegemony. You're going to hear that phrase, and it just means majority group. Okay, so let's just think about America. U.S. Census 2020, 57.8% are white. Hispanic is 187 Black is 12.4, Asian is 6%, and then it just says other, 5%. So who is the cultural majority in terms of ethnicity? White people. 
So if we were to go to Zimbabwe, if we were to go to China, if we were to go down to Peru, you go to these different countries and there's going to be cultural majorities in every country. Okay. How about the Pew Research in 2014? These numbers are changing rapidly. But in 2014, 70.6% identified as Christian. 22% not religious. 5.9% all other faiths. So what's the cultural hegemony in America? It's white. Technically not male because guys die young and do stupid things and women live longer and, and tend to be healthier. But because men tend to be in the workforce and in positions of, quote, power, the cultural hegemony of America is white by virtue of the population of the land, male and Christian. So on critical theory, all three of those must be overthrown and supplanted. That's what neo-Marxism and critical race theory and critical theory in all its varieties is ultimately teaching. That's what the activism is about. And that's where white guilt comes from. Because you are racist or you are misogynist or you are patriarchal by virtue of just being you, even though you disagree because everything is made culturally. And landing the plane right here before we take our break, so that this is not just um, theoretical. Northern Arizona University, have you heard of it before? Has recently made headlines. This is May 24, so this is a year ago. May 24, 2022, one year ago. For plans to require students to take four diversity courses in order to graduate starting in 2024. Okay? This is from the linked article, just full quote. At Northern Arizona University, a course titled Intersectional Movements of Race, Class, Gender, and Sexuality. Wait, there's that word intersectional. We just talked about it. This is the course for next year's academic program. A course entitled Intersectional Movements of Race, Class, Gender, Sexuality promises to analyze, quote, how intersectionality, the matrix of inequality, have shaped, look at this phrase, the production of knowledge. Truth is relative, right, says postmodernism. And whoever is in power creates the truth. So if Christians is the prevailing idea, or at least it used to be, that there's these cultural, is a cultural hangover with Christianity, so to speak. But if the notion of a household of husband and wife get married and have kids and sexuality and all those things, they're arguing that the production of knowledge is produced by those in power. And they want to provide a critical lens Whoa, why, does that, why is that word in there? Do you see it? Critical. A critical lens through which intersectional epistemologies can be foregrounded. Are you lost in the fancy talk? So what's, this, what's the fancy talk mean? Okay, what's the foreground something? You put it in front. 
What is epistemologies? What's intersectional epistemologies? Epistemology is the fancy philosophy word to describe how you know stuff. Well, who knows stuff? People with intersections. People with intersections know stuff. And so we need to put them in front to hear their voice and to tell us the truth. Another class, so, so that, was, that was intersectional movements of race, class, gender, and sexuality. Here's the next class students will have to take, unless this doesn't get passed. Introduction to queer studies. Okay, what do you do in that class? It covers queer theory and activism. Uh, queer theory means queer critical theory and systems of oppression. And, quote, the social and historical construction of gender and sexuality. Wait, who makes gender and sexuality? It's a social historical construction by the majority and those in power. And, quote, the role of allies in social change. Allies, activism. Remember I just talked about that? Here's another one, class. Trans existence and resilience is the name of the class. Meantime, promises to, quote, examine trans epistemologies, ways of knowing the world, as well as critiques of Eurocentric models of thinking. What's Eurocentric? Well, who are the Europeans? White people. And what's European? Well, the past 2,000 years, at least formed by a Christian ethic and biblical worldview. So examine trans epistemologies as well as critiques of Eurocentric models of thinking about genders that explain peoples. Oh, excuse me. That explain people's existence within Western frameworks and ontologies. Each of these courses counts towards one of NAU's two diversity requirements, which students must satisfy to complete their degrees. Now NAU plans to take these requirements even further, mandating that students take four of such courses, a policy that the university's own diversity curriculum committee described as, quote, unprecedented. So it might sound academic, because it is, because it's born out of academics, but just at the popular level, this is what then on a Sunday when we have students who are here and they're coming and they're, they're figuring out life, they're 18 years old and, and more. And I mean, can you define these words, these, these fancy titles and more? And yet this is what is, is the curriculum right now. So what I'm not talking about is just some, something that's way far away over there. I'm not talking about something that is just purely theoretical. It's actually beginning in 2024, unless the curriculum changes. So let me just finish with this. To reiterate, critical theory and all its sub-applications exists for revolution, now called activism and activist. The view exists to convince any person who is not in the majority that they are necessarily oppressed and repressed by the majority. I want to say that again because I don't want you to miss it. Do you remember how I said 
or not I said, how the Bible told us at the beginning that there are empty philosophies that to be on guard against, to take people captive. If you hear someone over and 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 over again telling you, you're stupid, 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 what, what might you be inclined to begin to think? Okay, you're oppressed, 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 and then you hear other people, you're oppressed and you're oppressed and you're oppressed. The view exists to convince any person who is not in the majority, if you're not a Christian, and if you're not white, and if you're not male, then you are oppressed and repressed by the majority, and there is a cultural plot against you. Critical theory aims to explain, expose, convince, and activate a person in their oppressions. To convince you you're oppressed, and then to activate you to do something about it, to join the march, and do all of those things, to be in the riot. At the cultural level, this occurs through an unceasing, ever-present mantra telling you you're oppressed. No matter what the theorists say, they aim behind the theory is nothing less than the overthrow of Christ, Christ's teaching, and Christ's people. The aim is to not just undo society, but overthrow it and replace it with the opposite of Christ, a society formed from his teachings. Because it's, it's, it's a biblical worldview. And so long as Jesus exists, and his word exists, and his people exists, we, standing on the word as our authority and saying, no, that is sin, and unless you repent you will be judged by God and go to hell eternally. But there is grace for you. Jesus died for your very sins. And if you repent of your sins and, and, and turn to Christ, he will save you and your sins will be washed away by his blood. Choose Jesus and be saved. He rose from the grave and you'll rise from the grave to glory too. Two ways to live. There they are. The world doesn't want to hear that because the world can't say it's wrong for you to say that someone is wrong. That's the world that we live in. And so it's making evangelism um, that much more important and necessary, if you could say it that way, and yet much more costly, increasingly. So let's take a quick break. Be back in six minutes. You're welcome. Buddy. Hello. Good evening. All right, have a seat, everybody. Let's jump right back in. Bottom of page nine. How do we make sense of the chaos, contradictions, and all of these worldly philosophies? That's in your face, it's aggressive, it's militant, it's activated, and more. Well, the explanation is as old as Romans 1. Technically, the explanation is as old as Genesis 3, but we'll go to Romans 1. It's right there in your notes. I'm not going to read the whole text. I'd encourage you to read it slowly and think about it, but just a few things. How do we make sense of all of these isms and all of these ideologies and all of this hostility? Um, one, one brother came up in between the break and just made the, made the point that said, if you look, this whole idea of this neo-Marxist critical theory is really only in the West, and it's not in other countries. 
um, that don't have this, the countries where, um, if I could, how can I say this? The, in the West where Christ and his church has been freest for the longest, I know that needs a lot of explanation. I'm not going to explain it. Whereas you're not being persecuted in China or Iran or something like that. This is not happening in Muslim countries. It's not happening in other countries. It's happening in the West as an assault on Christ, really. And, and Romans 1 is an example of that. Why is this happening? Well, here's what the Bible says. Romans 1, look at verse 18. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness do you see what it says? What do they do? Suppress the truth. So the truth is known. What is it to suppress something? You, you, you hide it. Hide the information. Put it somewhere else. No one can find it. So the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Why? Verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, divine nature, excuse me, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. All people everywhere without excuse. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. They became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for bodies, birds, beasts, and bugs. Right, mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts and to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, become they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. See that? They exchanged the truth for a lie. And then what does it say in verse 25? What are, people, what are all human beings doing? And worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, lesbianism. And the men likewise gave up their natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, homosexuality. Look down at verse 29. They, so this is all unbelievers. This is me before I was a Christian. This is you before you were a Christian. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. I mean, he's just opening the junk drawer and pulling out every possible term that he can get. So what I want you to see is that in Romans 1, why is the world the way it is? And what do we see, especially with this militant activism 
with the critical theory, LGBTQ+, and more, we are seeing Romans 1 on display. And so he emphasizes, Paul does in this, quite a bit of homosexuality, but I read verses 29 and following so that you can see that he's lumping in all the sins in there. And here is the punchline, verse 32. Though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. That, I mean, there, there's not a better explanation of our world right now. Not only doing them, but this whole rise of activism and being an ally is to celebrate doing those things for which Jesus went to the cross. You can read through the notes more, but that's a fundamental definition. We're moving to page 13. It's a fundamental definition of why the world is the way it is. We are simply seeing Romans 1 has always been on display ever since Genesis 3 has been in the Bible. You can think about that for a second. But we're seeing the unique display of it right now in our culture. So that's why. There's a spiritual component. And did you see what it says? Truth suppression and then worshiping and serving bodies, bugs, beasts, and birds. What is the four Bs? So don't miss this. It's a worship issue. Sin in Romans 1 is fundamentally a matter of worship. It's worshiping the one true living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or idolatry. It's worshiping creation in some capacity, or it's worshiping the creator. In the world, then, what we see ultimately behind it all is, is worship. And that's why I said at the very beginning, there's no such thing as secular. That's the verse that explains it, this passage, is that every human being is a worshiper, and it's from their worship flows all that they do. What's interesting, the word culture is related to the word cultus, which means worship in Latin, because what a culture is and what's important is downstream from what they worship. So on the Saturday before Father's Day, when the first annual uh, gay pride parade goes through downtown, that's a cultural moment, and that cultural moment is downstream from worship. Someone or something other than Jesus Christ. That's a lot of bad news. But there's good news. What page is this? 12. Page 12D. I want you to see this. Or do you not know, this is 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and following. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? That's bad news. That's bad news for the unrighteous. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral. That's a junk drawer term for any sexual expression outside your 
cisgender heteronormative spouse, your spouse who is gender and biology align, biblical marriage. Sexual morality is any sexual expression outside of biblical marriage. Don't be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So that's bad news. Judgment is coming. Hell is forever. But here's the good news. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Paul is speaking to the church at Corinth. And though this is in a letter, if he had been standing in the pulpit... And talking to the congregation, there were former homosexual men in the congregation, and homosexual women in the congregation, and former drunkards in the congregation, and former greedy people in the congregation, and former swindlers and liars, and all the sins were in the congregation. And here's what Jesus does with his blood. He saves us. Whatever your sin is, whatever the species is, Jesus is the Redeemer. All of those sins and more, none of the sins listed, including LGBTQ+, none of these are the unpardonable sin. The unpardonable sin, by the way, is rejecting the Holy Spirit's ministry of the gospel. No, I don't want Jesus. No, I don't want to believe that Jesus atoned for my sins. No, I don't want to believe that, that Jesus has done all that's necessary to make me right with God and reconcile me to him. That's the unpardonable sin because you don't want the gospel. So that's where the good news comes in. We talk about all this doom and gloom, but the very people who will be marching in the parade on that Saturday are the very type of people for whom Jesus came to die. He lived, died, and rose, and ascended, and is seated in heaven next to the right hand of the Father because he died for sins just like those, because he died for sinners like you and me. And so that means then every Sunday when we gather... We are a gathering of people who've been washed and sanctified and justified by Jesus. And in our congregation are former homosexuals, former lesbians, formal, former liars, and sexually immoral, which is every person, idolaters, all of us, and on the list goes. So what that means then, to your question, is that we should be the humblest people there ever was. Because Jesus didn't save us because we were more special or less sinful God saved us in Christ. He chose us before the foundation of the world because he chose to set his love on us. That's where the grace comes in. Because you can hear these things and get riled up, and we do need to speak the truth, God's truth, and we do need to resist sin where we can, but we need to recognize that we are armed with a gospel of grace, and the only change happens when the Spirit of God works with the word of God in a child of God to make an enemy of God a child of God. So don't lose heart. But now we move fast. 
So what is it to be human according to Scripture then? If we're to go out with our microphone and go walk around town and ask people, well, what's a human? A lot of people are going to say, we are evolved and evolving animals. We are, you are nothing less than the product of time, chance, and electrical impulses. There's no true meaning or significance to humanity other than we're apex predators and whatever socially created. So social Darwinism, survival of the fittest of the species at the individual, tribal, national, racial levels. That's what some people are going to say. What's a human? Animals. What if we go talk to a New Age spiritualist? They're going to say we are spirits, spirit beings housed in temporary bodies. So whether it's reincarnation or attaining nirvana or whatever the hodgepodge cauldron of ideas is, go down to Sedona, we can interview people. The idea is that the spirit is what it really means to be human. And the body needs to be, we need to be released from it. What does the Bible say? What does the Bible say it means to be human? We're not animals. We are not evolved. We are not merely spirits waiting to be unhoused. To be human is to be created in the image and likeness of God. That is the biblical definition. That's what you need to know. Genesis 1.26 then God said, let us, it's an inner Trinitarian conversation, make man in our image after our likeness. Do not accept any other definition of humanity. Every human being is made in the image and likeness of God. To be in the image of likeness of God means that we are defined by God. Pause there. We live in a world that says you self-define. What do you feel like? That's what you are. You do you. Live out your own truth. Nope. Humans are defined by God as opposed to autonomy, which is, means self-law. To be in the image of likeness of God means that God says that's what we are. It also means that we relate to God as children. Think vertically. And it also means that we relate to the world horizontally, displaying God's character and work. So what we are is related to what we do. We are image bearers of God. That's what it means to be human. What happened with sin? In Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, what happened to the image of God in us? If before the fall, Adam and Eve were perfect and their character was perfect, and like mirrors, like the moon reflecting the sun, Adam and Eve and you and I are supposed to reflect God's character. What happened in the fall, the image of God was not fully lost, but it was entirely marred. We lost the status of sonship. That's why central to the gospel is the idea of being adopted by Christ, the Father adopting us into his family through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Centerpiece of the Christian name for God is Father. And people are still the image of God, but it's inverted. Our lives preach and present a false God outside of Christ. Even so, Scripture speaks of people still being in the image of God, but now needing salvation. So the reason for the gospel, in part, is that believers, what's happening to us? 
The reason this class is called Imago Christi is because what God is up to in the gospel is that he is taking his image bearers who are in rebellion and deserve hell, and he sent his son Jesus, the true image of God, to live, die, and rise for us so that we are now being made into the image of Christ. The gospel is about a transfer of lineage and ancestry from the old Adam to the new Adam. Those who repent and renounce sin and rebellion against God receive the free gift of gracious salvation in Jesus Christ. So what's God up to? Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's the explanation of your life if you're a Christian. Hardships and happiness, trials and tribulations, sickness and success, your whole life, what's God up to at most? He is forming you into the image of of Jesus, Imago Christi. Why? So that Jesus might get the fame and glory. That Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers. That's what God is up to in the gospel. Any questions on what it means to be human? That was super fast. It took weeks to talk about that before. So is that it? No, thank you for asking. Because to be in the image of God includes being embodied. Embodied. What does that mean? So again, what does, what does science say? You are an evolved, an evolving animal. So science says uh, the body is all there is. There is no spirit. What you feel and think is just simply electrical uh, synapses firing in your brain. And that's it. There's no spiritual you. But uh, New Age-ism is going to say again that, well, what we really are is we're spirits. And we're in a, a dirt suit. And we got to get out of this thing to achieve whatever we need to achieve. What does the Bible say? Genesis 2-7. Then Yahweh God formed the man of dust from the ground. See that? He formed him. But then... God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and then the man became a living creature. So to be in the image and likeness of God means that we are embodied. What I want you to grasp from that verse 7 is that God made humans to be a union of hardware and software, material and immaterial, physical and spiritual. The design of all people is that we would be embodied. That's the best way I can think of to describe that you're not just a spirit and you're not just matter, but we are the union of body and soul. And when we talk about death later, we'll explain why that's important. And when we talk about resurrection later, we'll talk about why that's important. We are embodied. That means that we as Christians need to recover a theology of the body and the stewardship of it in this age 
Yes, we get new glorified bodies, but we are stewards of what God gives us. And we talked about that quite a bit. But let's, let's explore the spiritual part of us for a few moments, that the software. You have emotions. At least most of you do. What, what are they? Emotions, by definition, are subjective, meaning they begin internally, they're personal, and they're, in, they're intuitive. So look, look at this quote. Um, Biblically, the question of whether emotions originate in the mind or body isn't the central issue. Instead, the Bible places the focus on how emotions, check this out, facilitate or stop our role as God's image, image bearers, helping us love him and one another or stopping us from loving him and one another. Our emotions and all their dimensions, body and mind, are meant to function together in ways that serve God's purposes. And in that context, the Bible speaks to us as essentially unified persons who were created with minds and bodies designed to work together seamlessly in our image-bearing tasks. What do emotions do? Your emotions communicate what you value or love, right or wrong. What you care about, what you love, hate, fear, desire, lust, covet, etc. shapes how you feel. Emotions help us connect or disconnect with others, rightly or wrongly, and they reveal our hearts. Emotions serve as an invisible glue or gauge for relationships of all kinds. Ultimately, every emotion reflects our worship. That is, the loves or commitments of our hearts. So does a parent get angry and discipline a child because the child inconvenienced the parent who was trying to rest? And so the parent's upset not because the child maybe sinned against the Lord in what they did, but sinned against the parent, so to speak. And so the parent was inconvenienced. And in that sense, the parent loves themselves more when they discipline a child because they're not disciplining on behalf of Jesus. Or does a parent discipline on behalf of Jesus if a parent disobeys a child or something like that? Your emotions reflect your worship and what you care about. I have a question for you. Should you always follow your heart? <laughs> What does the world say? What did every graduation ceremony say? How many of you were at a graduation ceremony where someone told you to follow your heart? Anyone? Connor? Okay, some of you? Let me tell you the title of the book I got that from. Don't follow your heart. Why? Read Ephesians 4. Our hearts are deceitful, and they need to be informed by the Bible to how to think and feel. And here's a summary of expressive individualism versus whoops, biblical Christianity. This is, again, about the software part of you. What does it mean to be human? We are embodied, so we're thinking about the, the software part of us. So we live in a world that emphasizes the software. Do you feel like you're a man trapped in a woman's body? Do you feel like that you are a, a dragon or an otherkin? They're in the notes. You can read about those. Do you believe that you are a furry? Okay, 
expressive individualism, says, the world says, express your desires even if they're contrary to God's word. God says, deny your desires, confess them if they're contrary to God's word. The world says, don't let anyone make you feel ashamed of the inner you and your inner desires. The Bible says, don't be ashamed of following Jesus, his words, his standards, his gospel. The world says, your truth, do what you feel. The Bible says, God's truth. It's objective and outside of us. The world says, you do you, follow your heart. And the Bible says, in essence, don't do you, follow Jesus instead. You can read about the conscience and what that is. It's your inner lawyer turned against you, the angel and demons from the cartoon on your shoulder. You have a conscience. You're supposed to. Your conscience can be formed and shaped. It's not fixed. So your conscience can be more formed by the world or more formed by the Bible. And your, and your conscience is like an out-of-body experience when you don't want to feel guilty or shame. Your conscience makes you feel that way. Your conscience is a gift of God that the Spirit uses to help lead you to repentance and believe in Jesus and to follow Him more. But the conscience can also be seared. It can be branded and it can be dead, also described in the Bible. So we are embodied. There's spiritual components to us. The Bible, there's debate about uh, is there spirit, soul? Uh, what, what do we have? The, the Bible just talks about a whole lot of inner parts of you. Mind, heart, spirit, soul, and a bunch of different words. But just understand that you are, you have an immaterial part of you. And sin affects your emotions. And sin affects your feelings. So don't always believe what you feel. Next, to be in the image of God includes being gendered. What does the world say about gender? Gender is fluid. It's a social construct detached from one's biological sex. So there wouldn't be such a thing as masculinity or femininity. The world's going to say that gender... So now we're beginning to think about uh, the physical parts of us. We just looked at being embodied and emphasized the spiritual part. Now we're thinking about the material, the hardware. The world says that gender or non-gender is a choice. And it's to be determined by whatever and however you feel or you identify. Gender and sexuality is whatever one feels it to be. The binary notion of male and female and only male and female inseparable from one's physical gender, is harmful and hateful, right? So the, it's like Law C4 or something, I don't know if any of you remember what it was, but in Canada that was passed, that it is illegal even not just for clergy for, or for teacher, but for a parent. There are, there are parents in jail right now, if I remember correctly, that if a child says, I want to transition to a different gender, and the parent does not support that, but tries to work against it, they get put in prison. What does the Bible say? What is gender and what is it for? Look at Genesis 1 right here in your notes. So God created man, Adam, Adam, in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. 
Zakar and Akeba, he created them. What do those words mean? Well, the reason your Bible says male and female is those are the Hebrew words for biological males and biological females. The same terms are used for animals. Um, so the Bible, from the beginning, God is, creates the binary male and female. And male and female is biological, and it's reproductive. What is gender for? Gender is designed and defined by God as one of only two biological binaries, male or female. There is, that's it. Biological sex and gender is how all living creatures created by God according to their kind will reproduce according to their kind. To be embodied image bearers is the union of the physical and spiritual hardware and software. I want you to think about that. So to be embodied and to be gendered, it is a grave error to think biological sex and gender is merely a material aspect of our physical being, whereas the immaterial being is asexual and genderless. What does that sentence mean? It's the idea that, well, God gave you a gender physically, but then when God uh, breathed the spirit in you, when he gave you the breath of life, the breath of life, the software part of you, is genderless. And, and, and that's not true. To be male and female is not just physical, it's spiritual. In the Bible, there's such a thing as masculinity and femininity and the way that we present ourselves. Gendered masculinity and femininity tied with one's biology are a very good product of creation, integral to the creation commission, and uniquely reflect the image and likeness of God. Christ is the true man for whom true masculinity is modeled and whom fallen masculinity and femininity are redeemed and being restored. I want to pause there. I just made the point that gender or biological sex is not just the physical part of you, but it's also the spiritual part of you. And to be embodied means that you're not just a male on the outside, you're male on the inside. Female on the outside, female on the inside. Any questions about that idea that is absolutely against our world at this moment? Yes, question. Mike Runners. Fast. Hand up quick. Keep your hand up so you can be seen. Declan, you're a track star. That was a slow mile, buddy. <laughs> but thank you for serving us. It was a punch and patch. Okay, so a question I get very often is, will there still be gender in heaven? Like, will we still be male and female? You will remain you. How's that for an answer? So we know that we're not going to be married in heaven and um, won't reproduce in heaven, but you will remain you. We don't turn into angels. We don't turn into some new type of creature. You will continue to bear the image of God as you. And then ask Pastor Steve. 
Excellent question. Excellent question. So um, I believe that there is, so, okay. Even the question, super fast. Heaven is the intermediate state. When we die, death is separation, not cessation. When we die, our physical self and spiritual self are separated. And the physical self, the body, goes into the ground. And if you're a Christian, our spirit goes straight to be with Jesus. Resurrection is the reunion of the physical self and spiritual self. And forever from now, it's not in heaven, in the clouds, drinking Red Bull, like I thought when I was in high school. <laughs> I really did. Uh, I went to community college for three years. So I... I it's a, it's a two-year program. I didn't put that on my resume before the church called me. So... So when we, the resurrection happens and it's the reunion of, of material and immaterial, we will live, human beings are designed to live forever embodied. And those who go to hell and then ultimately to the lake of fire will be embodied in the judgment and wrath of God for eternity. And those who have repented of their sins and believe in Christ, we will live forever physically on the new physical earth with the new physical heavens with the animals and the rivers, catch and release fishing for all eternity. We'll talk about that when we get there. That's a very good question. So because we're going to be embodied, there's no sense it would become suddenly androgynous or asexual. Um, hope that helps. What is a man and what is he for? You can discover that on your own. Page 22, what is marriage? Ah, I'm going to read to you on the top of page 21. Concluding thoughts on biblical manhood and womanhood. So the argument is that it's not just physical, but it's spiritual masculinity and femininity. What are some concluding thoughts of scriptures I didn't read to you? Let me tell you. While on the one hand, both Christian men and women are being conformed equally into the image of Jesus... They, on the other hand, are gifted with creational gospel roles that image to the world living parables of what Jesus is like in relation to the church, his bride, and what the church is like in relation to Jesus, her Lord. So I had to even talk about it, but God has gifted roles to men and women before the fall. It's a part of his good creation. The fall affected the roles, but didn't create them. And in Jesus, Jesus is redeeming the roles, such that Ephesians 5 tells us in marriage that a husband is in the place of a Christ-like figure, that you should understand what Jesus is like better by looking at a husband love his wife and die for her, and a wife... You should get a better sense of what the church is like by looking at the wife the way that she submits to and respects her husband. Whoa. Biological sex and gender, masculinity and femininity at their creational foundation have gospel patterns built into them. It means something to be a man and it means something to be a woman 
and they have gospel patterns built into them. Men and women are designed to complement one another, not compete with each other. And we are not egalitarian where there's no difference between men and women, like our culture says. The cultural assault against these are ultimately an assault on God's creational norms. So when you say that there's roles in marriage, that's when the snort happens. Are you kidding me? That's repressive misogyny, patriarchalism, and more. The sexual revolution, secularism, leave your God at home and out of social life, feminism, neo-Marxism, critical theory, all its applications, et cetera, et cetera, all the isms, 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 at root and fruit are anti-Bible, anti-gospel, anti-human flourishing, anti-Christ. And they exist to distort, disparage, distract, and deny the lordship of Jesus Christ over all of life in his gracious, life-giving, life-restoring gospel of repentance and salvation. <laughs> There's a sentence for you. I like run-ons. You know it. The, what we're seeing right now is the Bible is very clear about gender and sexuality, biological sex. We're moving into manhood and womanhood. We're going to move into marriage and why God invented marriage and more. But it's all for the purpose of leading to the flourishing of society and humanity. Right? So the creational beginning in Genesis 2 was for Adam and Eve to be fruitful, multiply, fill and subdue the earth to cultivate the Garden of Eden until so the Garden of Eden expanded and filled the whole creation. They didn't. Now Jesus is doing that through his church. And God does that through individual Christians and Christian households and churches. And if the Satan and the world can undo marriage and gender and sexuality and undo the household and more then you break apart the atoms of God's universe, so to speak, by which he multiplies his gospel. Marriage is the institution created before the fall, so it's a creational good, and it exists for the creation commission, fruitful, multiply, fill, and subdue the earth. sex I know that you'll stay for an extra five minutes for this so the topic of sex is deliberately coming after talking about marriage in the household because God as I said earlier designed all sexual expression exclusively for biblical marriage and I keep saying biblical marriage because I'm talking about uh, a biological male and a biological female who identify their gender with their biology, marrying and having kids. Um, and there's to be no sexual expression outside of marriage. As a creational good, marital sex is not to be shamed or shunned. It's not to be viewed as dirty or wrong. And if you think about it, 
conceivably, this is a, this, here's an, a, hypothetically, God could have done, but he didn't. God could have made us non or asexual, we just self-replicated. He could have done that, he didn't do that, FYI. God could have made sex utilitarian and not pleasurable. God could have made sex non-unitive. So the, the covenantal union of a marriage, meaning the intense mental, emotional, physical, spiritual union, union and bonding that takes place. He made it that way. Conceivably, God could have made sex not exclusive between a husband and wife, but open to any and all. He, he could have done that, but, but he didn't. And he couldn't actually do those other things because this is his brilliant, perfect, unalterable gospel plan. So why did God gift sex exclusively to marriage? It is a God-given, built-in desire and drive to marry. It is meant to lead to marriage. Why did he gift it? Other-oriented service and encouragement. Why else? Private, exclusive, physical display of the marital covenant union, oneness and marriage. Why did he invent sex? Having babies. Why? Mutual comfort, especially in sorrow. 1 Corinthians 7, mutual protection from sexual temptation and sin and mutual delight and satisfaction. See the Song of Solomon, which Christian Cunningham spoke the whole thing to his bride at the altar at their wedding. He did. Asked to watch their marriage video. It was awesome. You guys, we, we are over time. So as I said, I gave you the notes so that you could read. There's, there's, there's more stuff to see in there. Um, one of the main aims that I had, I, I think, not feel, I think was accomplished this evening is I wanted to at least give you the intersection between the current cultural moment and why people are thinking the way they're doing and how it's going viral and how that intersects with or contradicts rather the Bible and the next section which is the a main one is getting into the LGBTQ plus movement and in this I am going to tell you that homosexual orientation is sinful same sex same sex attraction is sinful and it's a desire to be put off is it appropriate to speak of a gay Christian? No. Once we're born again, our identity is in Christ. We're new creation, new humanity. We're to put off the old man and put on Christ. There's no modifier to Christian. You're not an alcoholic Christian. You're not uh, an American Christian. You're a Christian. And so we don't modify the word Christian, especially with sin struggles, which Jesus has already forgiven us and defeated at the cross. I gave you links to articles, and especially this one that just came out. It was in my newsletter when it came out. Rosaria Butterfield, Google it. Why I no longer use transgender pronouns and why you shouldn't either. It is a brilliant, brilliant article. So you can go through those, and then I have a lot of stuff on death, resurrection, and the 
eternal state. I'm going to close this in prayer, and then I'm going to stand here for the next hour and answer all the questions that you want to ask. Lord, we thank you that you have not left us in the dark, but that you have revealed your good and perfect life-giving will and ways in your word. And Lord, the more that we conform to what your word says, the more we flourish. Your word is the instruction manual for being a person. And Lord, it is very confusing, especially for the young people among us, about what it means because there's so many competing empty ideas. We pray, Lord, that your spirit would not let your word return void in all of our hearts, especially theirs. And Lord, that you would send revival. Your spirit would change, would gift new hearts that love Jesus, repent of their sins. Many people are saved. The church becomes more holy. And that you would do an amazing work in this, these crazy times so that your church is built and you're made famous. Pray this all in Christ's name. Everyone said, amen. amen. Feel free to get up and leave as you need to. Are there instructions for student ministries? Uh, you have to stay, obey your student director. And um, feel free to, to go if you need to go. Mike runners, get ready to run. Open game, all things. You can peek forward in the notes and ask me a question, whatever it is. Don't tell stories, ask a question. Go, yeah, go. If you have a mic in your hand, go. Okay. Um, so, to what extent do you think that... Um, and you have to hold the mic against your chin, but don't okay. let your lips touch it. That's gross. There we go. Um, so, in terms of, like, when Christians are talking about sin and people are frustrated with, like, the focus on, like, the transgender movement or something like that, do you think it is right to consider that or... Or can some sin be considered worse in a sense? I guess all sin separates us from God, but it seems as if, like, all sin is sinful, but it might be like, yeah, is it okay to consider it worse? Uh, I personally think that there are degrees of sin and degrees of punishment in hell, uh, because Jesus says it will be worse for those cities on that day, and uh, in the same way that there's a greatest commandment and second is like it so there's a first and second tier so all scripture is inspired but there's a greatest commandment and a second so i think something similar is taking place that's that's my understanding of scripture um there are certain species of sins that jesus speaks more forcefully to for example sins against children um and because of that um on the one hand we should be equal opportunists in denouncing all sin. And in this cultural moment with the aggressive push with all things LGBTQ+, it makes sense that there's a counter push from pulpits and from believers saying, no, that that's not right. That's not good, true, and beautiful. And it won't give you life to enter into that same-sex marriage or whatever. It's not going to give you life to, de to transition. Because um, the, the, the cliche fault is, well, you don't denounce liars and greedy. We do, but it's true that probably if you do a word cloud, it doesn't get talked about as much, other than when I just read the text a moment ago. Would it also have to do with, like, in terms of severity, that that sin is specifically, like, rejecting the image of God in a person? I think that you could make that argument. Um, 
make no mistake, I mean, you can, so I, I have stuff on hell in your notes where outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth, the worm never dies and it's eternal and unending. And so it would be wrong to think of, uh, it's the kegger party with my buddies, um, that Satan's there and ruling over it. No, Matthew 25 says that God created hell for Satan and his demons. So what I wouldn't want someone to think is, well, my sins are less sinful than that guy, so hell's going to be less bad for me. And that's, that's, it's going to be the worst. Uh, God will perfectly mete out his judgment. Can I have one more? Yeah. Okay. Um, and then also, like, to what extent do you think Christians have a responsibility both for themselves and to challenge others to speak out on these issues without falling into that silence is violence trap of, yeah. I think that's a conscience issue. And I think every believer must be convinced um, and consider where the Lord has placed them and in what capacity to, to speak out. Um, so when I went to and spoke before the city council, I did that based on the conviction that I was representing this congregation and speaking on behalf of the membership of this church against the city council wanting to pass what they had to say regarding abortion. So I think some people are going to be given a platform where they can say something that's a little bit more. Um, and then for you, it might be something that is said to a friend over lunch and everything in between. That's why I said it's a conscience issue. Not every believer is going to have the same size megaphone, if I can say it that way. So you shouldn't be guilted into things. Really prayerfully and humbly uh, seek the Lord for what should be said, when and where, how to utilize social media wisely, things along those lines and more. Excellent questions. What else? Um, <clears throat> on page seven, you mention monism and twoism, oneism and twoism, and then you talk about Dr. Peter Jones is the most prolific author on this topic. Is he the most prolific author of a Christian critiquing monism or a monist author? Yeah, he, thank you for asking that question. He is an excellent Christian brother uh, who has really good content on apologetics, especially regarding spirituality and new age stuff. So yeah, um, so he's written a lot, a exposing and against it from a Christian perspective. Thanks for asking that. Um, hi. Um, so what is the ideal form of government in the broken, sinful world we live in? So if secularism isn't a thing, which makes sense, but theocracy doesn't go very well, what's the ideal form of government? Does that make sense? Oh, it makes sense. So I'm going to pass the, the mic to Pastor Andy. Uh, yeah, Jesus is king. So, right, uh, Revelation chapter 1, king of kings, lord of lords. There is, there is uh, intramural theological debate on your eschatology and the role of the church in the world and, and all these things. But um, the Bible gives an elasticity where it does not prescribe a singular political form, um, but whatever form politics takes, in my opinion, should adhere as closely to scripture as possible. Then that, That's a huge statement, so probably shouldn't have said it, but um, I should have said it, yeah. Okay, 
if he took Sam, okay. now take um, the mic. So, because the question is, is like, we don't want to um, force people into Christianity politically, right? So if you live in a country where there are atheists and there are Muslims and there are Christians, um, it's just kind of interesting, like, when you come to principles that would contradict, you know what I mean? I, I don't know. It's just kind of a impracticality in living in this broken world and, like, public schools and things like that. Like, how do we work this when we're, if we can't do secular, which makes sense, what can we do that works in a pluralistic society? I can't answer that question, but what I can say is that Romans 13 says that the government, regardless whether it's a king to city council, is God's deacon to carry out his will. And so I believe that we would all agree that Jesus is um, uh, hates abortion. And yet now we have the Supreme Court deal, but then we have all the other polit politicking. And so this next election cycle... Um, abortion, right? So the political parties are changing from economics to anthropology, and what's going to separate the political parties is understanding of humanity, and part of that is abortion, and so that's going to be the chief thing that, that people are going to try to win their, their, um, their platforms on. So there are laws that are um, unjust laws, but it's a question, I have to stop there because that's, we're not talking about that in the class. It's a really good question, though, Mandy. Yep. Why do non-Christians get married? Non-Christians get married because it is a creational ordinance. So I'd be willing to perform, the, or I have performed, wedding ceremonies for unbelievers, for non-Christians, because it's a creational ordinance from Genesis 1 and 2. Yeah. So what you see, we didn't get into it, but like the whole image of God, even though sin has happened and people are fallen. The image of God has not been lost completely. So people for all of human history, sweeping statement, have instinctually still married, still had kids, fruitful, multiply, fill and subdue the earth. So there's this instinctual obedience to what's called the creation commission in Genesis 1 and 2. So that's why uh, unbelievers still get married technically or, and should. It's a really good question. Twelve hundred pages, uh, but it's worthwhile. He talks about everything from gun control to democracy, forms of government, you name it. So anyway, yeah, that's it's, a, it's a good source. It's a good recommendation. Other questions? Yes. Okay, so we're recording, so you got to talk with the mic. So there's different uh, lists are coming out regarding books on politics. I have about 20 to give you, but we'll talk about that offline. Really good. Yes. Oh, I'm done with it. You're done with it. Okay, questions. Questions from our notes. Dave Westparker. Uh, so I have two questions for you. Uh, first one is, how do we, the liberal church, those that are putting... LGBTQ, the, the uh, 
going on the hierarchy of sin, whether it even exists or not, but those that are unrepentant or even worse, flaunting their sinful acts and, and you know, standing in pulpits or proselytizing evangelism, etc. Within the church. Yeah, yeah, create people. I forget which one of the one of the denominations is ordaining LGBTQ folks Epi- and putting them Episcopalian in pulpit. Episcopalian priests, yeah. right, and, and et cetera. So how do we how do we we work with or address that? Great, great question. So my initial reaction is to say that those are apostate churches, and they're actually not a church. And the reason is what we just read in that 1 Corinthians 6 passage, the beautiful gospel passage and such, where some of you have been washed, cleansed, justified. A church that promotes and accepts, for example, LGBTQ+, or a church that um, is ostensibly actually racist and hates people of different skin colors, whatever the sin is. A church cannot promote or endorse sin. It's abdicated its rights and responsibility from, from God. So... Um, there are churches in town that have done that. There, there's the one, it's the Episcopalian church right there, the, the All Are Welcome. And then the Commons has done that um, and others. So, yeah, there are, this is a conversation during the break, but when I read that First Corinthians passage, there is a false argument that on the homosexual topic, this is the way the argument goes. The argument goes something along these lines. What Paul meant, and this is not true, this is false. They'll say what Paul meant was that he was speaking against um, um, promiscuous sexual relationships. But so long as someone is in a monogamous same-sex relationship, that's okay. And that is false. And there's all this Greek and historical gymnastics that people try to, that churches like that will get into and it's just, it's, it's outright false. And so what it's doing is it's helping people not repent of their sins. It's endorsing a false gospel because it's a false church. Because they're calling beautiful what Jesus shed his blood for. Thanks I, for that question, Wes. Yeah. Second question. Yeah. Um, what's the best way to address the human parasite theory? theory that like we're, we're a parasite on this earth and like we're the cause of everything and so, like, basically humankind as opposed to what Scripture says, right, to subdue and multiply um, with good stewardship, which are, I'll agree that we've not definitely done the best job on that. But how, do we address, what would, how would you address the human parasite theory? Yeah, so that's related to all the ecological and environmental stuff that's going on right now. Zero population growth, all of those different things. That's what I was taught when I went to... Um, when I was, got my undergrad, I got my undergrad degree in that. And so env- environmental geography was a, kind of like a main focus. And the conclusion as an unbeliever, or I, was just beca- I was just, had just become a believer, was that, yeah, it has to be zero population growth, all those things. So it's false. Um, now, I'd have to produce statistics to show that, but I'd rather just point to Genesis 1 and say, God says, be fruitful, multiply, fill, and subdue the earth. And God has promised to never flood the earth again. Um, you can read that in Genesis also. Think Noah, rainbow. But then also, the earth is going to be remade and more. So we just keep on keeping on. That's, 
not the most sophisticated answer, but it's a biblical answer. And then I want to get more details with someone on a more personal level on that, on that question. It's good. What else? Other questions? Hold on. Catherine. Hi. Hi. Um, I'm thinking specifically of family relations, but this could apply also outside of families. When we have someone who does not claim to be a Christ follower, but is openly embracing and practicing a homosexual lifestyle, my understanding of scripture is that we would love them as Christ loved them, we would include them, we would, um, as Rosario Butterfield would say, you know, the gospel comes with a house key, we would show hospitality. What do you do when you have someone, again, openly embracing and practicing a homosexual lifestyle, but they are claiming to be a Christ follower? How should we approach that? particularly as regards practical, logistical things like including them in family functions? Excellent question. So two, two different parts. You kind of gave like a little secret kick, kicker there at the end to say that they're a believer too, uh, claiming to be a believer. Okay, so, so number one, it's a matter of prudence. It's a fancy way of saying wisdom. And so you have to give principles. So just generically speaking, um, it depends on, are we talking about the aunt who lives in New York? Are we talking about a child? So the, depending upon the relationship of what someone says, a, um, I'm going to assume in this, for example, a parent is going to have to think about the aunt and use wisdom. So if the aunt gets married, I don't think that a Christian can go to the marriage because it's tacitly endorsing that it's right. And there should be a pre-conversation to say that they know what you believe and why and how much you love them. Uh, that's my judgment. That's, that's my judgment on that. Um, so that's where it's a, it's a wisdom issue. I wouldn't give them a house key and let, let someone come in um, and have... So I'm not denying Rosaria Butterfield's hospitality. There just needs to be wisdom also in how we exercise hospitality. So I'm, I'm thinking, okay, I've got a bunch of little kids... They're going to be influenced and have questions. We have those conversations. So there's just so much nuance. It just needs discernment. Okay, now let's talk about somebody who claims to be a believer. Church discipline is church discipline. When the membership agrees together to remove someone from the fellowship who agrees, who says, I am a believer, but I am not repenting of my sin. So then we say, uh, we don't have confidence in you, in your faith. We're unsure. We're going to turn you out from the membership. And we're, we love you and we're going to pray for your repentance. But the reason I point that out is a family does not exercise church discipline because a family is not a church. But a family still needs to use discernment in letting, being, uh, figuring out how to be bold and clear. So going back to John 14, I communicated earlier. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. He who does not love me does not keep my commandments. I'd want to bring this before the, the, the relative at a wise, gracious, humble, tear-soaked time to talk to them and say, here's what the Bible says. Here's what you say. Either you're actually not a Christian or you're confused. And I'd want to lead them in, in that. And then if they were at a church, 
the church would need to painstakingly walk through a process of whether or not to exercise discipline or not at an appropriately time and speed. Good questions. Really good questions. What else? Connor. Not Connor. Avery. Yes. Yes. There's um, two of them now. So this is kind of in the same vein. Um, but what would you say to someone who would use the argument like homosexuality as a sin, it's not hurting anyone or it's not hurting somebody else? So why, why would it be a sin? Kind of what would you say to that person? Yeah, that's a, that's a really common argument. It's a really good question. And at first it seems like a stumper, right? Like, well, I mean, they're just doing whatever they want to do. So what's the deal? Now, I think when you start getting into the, someone who's actually transitioning, hormone therapy, especially when you get into kids, uh, that's a separate conversation. But I would step back and tell the person that sin always hurts. Jesus speaks of principles of sowing and reaping, that, um, that agricultural picture of the seed that you sow, you're going to reap a plant and fruit from that. So even the thing that, even our own hidden sins, which only us and the Lord know about, sin always spreads and it always affects others. So uh, a, a guy who is struggling with sin and is racked in guilt and all this different stuff, he, um, he is going, it's going to affect his relationships with others and more. So it's just simply, it's a false dichotomy. It's a false statement to say that it's not going to hurt anybody. It's actually hurting you eternally. And you're sowing seeds that are going to affect you for the rest of your life. Now, Jesus washes us. He cleanses us with his blood. He forgives us. The stain of his blood stains over the stains of our sins. But I would reject that on premise. Does that make sense? Yeah. Just because you can't see the consequences, Jesus does. And God is hardwired into... Um, the world consequences for our sins and they impact us and sin uh, is always enslaving the gospel is always freeing jesus has a light yoke so people think their sin is freeing them when it's actually enslaving them and more so there's there's a lot there yeah it's good great question what else connor not connor Quick comment on what on the last Wait, no comments. No comments right now. We'll save it for afterwards. Thank you. My question is, how would you witness to someone who openly rejects the gospel, the Bible, Christians, all of that, and who has made up their mind and is unreasonable to reasoning? How would you show them grace, show them the love of Christ when they have made up their mind not to accept that? A couple different principles, right? So we can point to text in the New Testament where Jesus talks about shaking this, the dust off your sandals, not casting your pearls before swine, that you, in good conscience, humble, faithful, gracious, courageous, direct truth-telling, can talk to somebody, and if they reject, 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 there may come a point, it's a wisdom so you would need counsel on specific details from someone who can actually get into the details of the situation. Is it time to break the relationship? Is it, but if it's a family member, that's a little bit different. If it's a friend, that's a little bit different. 
So that's a wisdom issue that would need specific details to know is it time to break that relationship off. One of the things that we tend to do is when it comes to evangelism, we forget that the body of Christ is larger than us. And we think that we're the only one to share the gospel with somebody and we're the only one to pray for them, not recognizing that Jesus often takes many gospel encounters, many people witnessing, and that if I chickened out and didn't share the gospel or I shared the gospel, I, I have a, had a dear friend in Portland who spent hours, 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 hours sharing the gospel with him. And he's one to argue. And, you know, we live in different places now. But I trust that if the Lord's going to save him, he's going to bring other believers into his, that guy's life. And what was once a cantankerous argumentative guy may now be open to the gospel 10 years, 20 years later, because God will save all his elect. Thank you. So ask your mom and dad. Um, <clears throat> so I've, I've got a couple different coworkers who believe some different things. So one of my coworkers, or a couple of them, would believe, you know, they're like, you know, the homosexual, homosexuality is wrong. Um, whereas some of the other ones would believe, you know, it's okay. But then they're open to what the scripture has to say about the, the Christian faith. Um, now, where's the line? Because I, I know that we are not the ones to be saving people. We're the ones to be planting the seed, and um, hopefully that they're one of God's elect. You know, that's not for us to know. So where's the line? Um, keep, go a little bit longer with that. What do you mean? I mean, there, there's got to be a certain point where, you know, you, you, can, keep, you can keep on sharing with them and, and you know oh similar to like Connor, connor's question where someone keeps rejecting keeps rejecting not necessarily rejecting um no but w w i guess my question is what exactly do you do in that instance because i've got um awesome to have the chance to have you know be able to share the gospel but they're believing two different things which is you know i don't believe in the christian faith i believe homosexuality is wrong and then there's some who believe, I believe homosexuality is right, but I'm open to the Christian faith. I'm, I'm interested, you know? A couple of principles. Principle number one, don't get fired. I won't. So, right, so even for others, that would be um, if you are able to have this as a, unless your work environment allows it, go out to lunch, breakfast, dinner afterwards, do it off the clock so that you can't get fired and it's on your record just, just for that. I'm too valuable. You're too valuable? Nice. <laughs> nice. So, so um, a couple thoughts. Remember when we are um, sharing and speaking of the gospel of Jesus Christ to somebody, the most important thing for them to understand is that they are a great sinner who's in need of a great savior. So people are going to want to use smoke screens of, well, I, I, this is like they're really into this sin or this politics or this. People have all their stuff. You got to get right to the heart because they need a new heart. And so we need to help them understand that. Have you lied? Have you, you know, so we're looking to see them, uh, the Lord save them. So I wouldn't argue necessarily LGBTQ plus with them because they don't have a regenerate heart. So they're not going to embrace it. Maybe they're a cultural conservative or something along those lines and they might agree but they agree for the wrong reasons i want them to agree for gospel reasons so you want to go after the gospel and then i would begin to um 
attack in a gracious way, whatever other, and that's what discipleship is, right? Teach them to obey all that I have commanded you, and lo, I'm with you to the end of the age, Jesus says in Matthew 28. So uh, prioritizing those, those details. I guess that's sort of my question is, you know, to, to what point are you attacking their beliefs? Because we, the Bible says to approach one another's with love and respect. Um, it doesn't matter if they're in the church, you know, it doesn't matter if they're in the faith. So at what point do you switch from, you know, this is, you know, to, to lovingly sharing with them to lovingly telling them that what they're doing is stupid and wrong, you know, because you either push them away right away or you don't, but how? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a discernment issue. You have to discern your own heart, right? So the gospel is offensive because it says, you all are worthy of hell, and yet Jesus is worthy of worship because he loves you because the Father sent him, right? So, so we don't need to be unnecessarily offensive. We can be firm and courageous. We just have to, you know, make sure that we share the gospel with the fruit of the Spirit and more. So I would say that would be a heart issue to, to navigate, and some people are just argumentative for argumentative sake. That was like my buddy I explained earlier where he just wanted to take an idea, become devil's advocate, and just he'd argue for as long as you're willing to argue. Um, and then it's like, all right, this is not going anywhere. I, I, I see that, so I'm just going to, you've heard it. You don't want the gospel. Peace out. You just have to use discernment in that. Good question. Z Go ahead, Brandon. You got to turn your mic on, make sure it's green. Thank you. Is yours on topic, Catherine? Sort of, but go for it. Okay. I got to try and formulate this better. Um, regard earlier, you've mentioned like our bodies are temples. We have to take care of our bodies. But that's also paired with like we will be redeemed with new, like perfect bodies in he after heaven. Moving forward. So my question is... Um, Genesis 2, like we're commanded to cultivate and care for the earth, or whatever that second, there's a bunch of different translations of that. Um, how does that same concept apply with the earth? Does it apply? Because the earth is also something that is ruined by sin, will be redeemed in the new creation. Yeah. Yes, it's going to look like Hobbiton. <laughs> Anybody? Okay, thank you. Yes. There, there should be in the theology of ecology. So, so the stewardship that we have been given. Um, oh, I don't remember where it's in Revelation. 18, 19 maybe. Uh, one of the things that God judges the earth is for how the earth is plundered. Steve, do you, can you think of that verse that I'm talking about? In Revelation, there's judgment, and one of the one of the reasons stated for the judgment of the earth is uh, the way the earth was plundered. We can find it afterwards. You don't need to sit, look at me looking at my Bible. Stewardship is built into a comprehensive, full life understanding, and so so uh, I think that, in my opinion, evangelicals have not done a good job of having a theology of ecology because 
it sounds or smells liberal. And then given all the increase of um, the environmental alarmism and all that stuff is going to cause us to recoil even more. But we have to make sure that we are just being informed biblically and aware of what's going on. So, uh, yeah, I think there needs to be a stewardship of, the, of creation. Um, so this is going back sort of to, to how to have conversations with people, but a little bit different um, in terms of how do you have conversations in that, that postmodern, post-logic society? Because if you're trying to have a conversation, you're going to appeal to logic, but so many of those things, like the, the love is love, sounds like it's law of non-contradiction, but it's not. It's It's twisting it, or like... You, you can't tell that you're transphobic because you're transphobic. Those circular ideas. Um, how do you have a reasonable conversation about those things? I would expect it not to be reasonable. So largely speaking, there's kind of two main approaches to apologetics. Apologetics doesn't mean that you're saying you're sorry for being a Christian. It's an old word that means that you're defending the faith. And one of them is like an evidence approach. So if you have ever heard of the book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, Volume 2, or Second Edition, or whatever, it's a really good book that if you were to have all the evidence, take the witness stand, and you're the judge, and you listen to all the evidence, are you going to find Jesus guilty of being God or not guilty of being God type thing? But in a postmodern age, that way of thinking is rejected quite a bit. I think it's good for us to know those things. We should be able to have a conversation and say, okay, Jesus is either a legend, liar, lunatic, or Lord, right? The four L's and talk about that. But another approach is a little bit more tricky and it takes longer, it's more conversational, but that is, uh, it's called presuppositional apologetics. It's a fancy way of saying you just keep asking questions like a little kid, why, why do you believe that? Well, how do you know that's true? Why do you believe that? How do you know that's true? And you try to drill down till you get to their, like I said at the beginning, what's their core authority? Well, I feel that that's true. And now you're arguing with their feelings or something along those lines. But the, th the good thing is our ability to argue and our ability to be smart or say the right thing at the right time doesn't save people. The Holy Spirit saves people. And so we can bumble along and say silly things and say things wrong and still preach Jesus' death and resurrection, and the Holy Spirit will save somebody. So however you share the, the gospel, know that it doesn't depend upon you. It depends upon the Lord. And in terms of postmodernism, do you see, like, in current culture, it seems like we've seen the whole movement of, of follow your heart, of be you. Um, but do you think that's kind of on its way out in terms of, like being replaced by appeal to authority, sort of? Yeah, I think that we're at this uh, inflection point culturally. What, is that, what does that even mean? We're at this moment where change is happening because even many unbelievers are seeing the insanity of the neo-Marxist critical theory, just, you know, watch the news type thing. And so people are beginning to see that things are changing. What's next? Only the Lord knows. Uh, maybe he'll come back. Maybe he'll bring us home. But we need to plan um, 
you know, what, I think one of the things we do is like we hope the Lord comes back tonight, but we plan like he's going to come back in a hundred years. So we need to make decisions for our great grandchildren. So part of that would be maybe you should study political science and then help form whatever is going to be new after the death of secularism. I have no idea. Hey, what's up? Um, <laughs> Hi, Jacob. <laughs> no, I was going to ask. Um, this is fairly unrelated, which is why I was uh, waiting. But there's a question that popped in my mind at the end of last week after we talked a lot about the whole uh, babies don't go to hell thing. Uh-huh. And my... Uh, Those are just really... The way that you said that was... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Children go to heaven. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Sorry. Um, <laughs> what I was asking was uh, the, uh, what about for in the case where there's adults who do not have cognitive function um, at a high level or in the case of when people get older, say they were saved, did uh, or showed fruits of the spirit and stuff, but through something like Alzheimer's end up completely forgetting about their faith or salvation. What, in those, what about in those cases? Those are easy questions. Okay, so the, the first one, yeah, that was, a, that was a, so what we talked about last week was the death of young children. And I would also add to that that somebody who is intellectually impaired, severe Down syndrome, something along those lines, I think that would our, that conversation would apply to them as well. Um, someone who is gives all the fruits of being saved, and then in late life gets advanced horrible dementia, Alzheimer's, and. Um, I think that charity and credibility would lead me to think that if the fruit of their life evidenced genuine conversion, that they're, it's just a really sad state and effect of the fall. That's, that's my opinion. Um, we, you can't lose your salvation. Um, yeah. That's a good question. What else? Really? That's it? <laughs> it's got to be a question. No comments. Uh, I'm teaching the class. <laughs> mm. Let's talk afterwards. What else? Any, any other questions? Um, how do you approach someone who's dealing with a sin, an esoteric sin, something that's rare, they're idolizing something, but it's not your typical thing that you bring before the church and whatnot? How do you, I mean, yes, prayer, obviously, but is there anything further beyond that that can be done to alleviate the situation? Are you thinking that there's like a, a situation where a believer, true believer, 
struggling with a person uh, with a certain species of sin, some type of sin. Yes. Um, I there's a so so church discipline, kind of working backwards. We see in First Corinthians five that when there is kind of heinous, awful, really extreme sin, it's immediate expulsion out of the church. So if the law is being broken, that would be something that, that must come to light. It must come to light. But all believers, all of us, are in the middle of our sanctification, and we all have our different sins that we struggle for different seasons and things along those lines. Mm-hmm. The issue is a matter of repentance. So there can be seasons of being entangled in sin but we hate our sin, but we're trapped, and we need brothers and sisters to help us out of it through prayer and whatnot. So I would want to enlist the help of trusted brothers and sisters in Christ, mm-hmm. as wisdom would allow. Maybe it's just one person to help out of that. Um, but I'm assuming a heart posture of, I hate my sin, I love Jesus, I want out of it, I don't know how to get out, versus I love my sin, and I don't want to leave it. Those are two completely different heart postures. Does that make sense? So one seeks help. Because you can't do it alone. Mm-hmm. Or the person can't do it alone. And then the other one is um, if a person thinks that they are engaging in willful church disciplinable sin and doesn't want to repent, the concern there is their heart with Jesus. And, and is that person really, truly saved and a convert? Because we can get trapped in seasons of sin, but we always know that deep down we love Jesus and we recognize that we're betraying him. When someone doesn't care about betraying Jesus, they're actually probably a false convert if they think they're a Christian. Okay. So enlisting the, enlisting the help of other believers to speak the gospel into a person's life, reminding them of the gospel, reminding them of their baptismal testimony, reminding them of fruit they've seen in that person's life because we struggle, we get depressed, things along those lines, and so we need other people to help remind us that we love Jesus. Okay. Thank you. A leading question. You can ask it. Cool. Hello? Awesome. Um, (laughs) So, for like people who are married on this earth, they go to heaven, they're no longer married. What are they? Are they just like cool friends <laughs> are they like neighbors here's the best news you can live in the same yeah like adjoining hobbit holes so maybe like a duplex i don't know <laughs> a duplex by the beach so yeah. Here's 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 what this that I means one that there's there are di- there are difficult doctrines to understand. Here's what's imp- I think what's really important to know. That um, I will have an infinitely better relationship with my wife in heaven, no longer as husband and wife, than we could ever have on this side of creation. And in glory. There's no regret, and there's no nostalgia, so we won't miss anything from this age. That's about all I know. Cool. So what if you're, like, married twice or three times? 
you'll have three good friends and it's not an argument for divorce and remarriage. Cool. I don't plan to, but cool. That's all. Right, I mean, that gets tricky with uh, a, uh, a widow, right? Her husband right. dies and she marries a number yeah. of times. That was a similar thing that was brought to Jesus. Yeah. So the key thing that to, we, we have a tendency to think of glory and there's parts of us that are going to miss parts of this age. And we have to know that we won't because we were going to have, however it works, the Lord is going to give us his understanding and more. And it's a state of perfection and glory. And so nothing in this age will even rival the next age. Okay. Um, Asking for a friend? Second, second follow-up question. <laughs> um, <laughs> Will we remember this life when we're in heaven slash on the new earth? Uh, speculation, I think so. Cool. So we can be like back back on the old earth. But see I then X, Y, Z. Yeah. So what we'll remember, I don't know what we're going to remember. Um, I don't right. think that there's going to be like a, like a delete button. Like the Lord's going to hit delete and then we'll never know that this happened. Here's why. Because this whole age is designed to magnify the gospel of Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the power of the Holy Spirit. And so Ephesians 2, Ephesians 2 talks about how we will for eternity grow in marveling at the gospel. So somehow, I suspect, this is Dave speculating, I suspect that we're going to understand parts of the fallenness of this age, yet somehow not have regret or nostalgia, and yet the magnification of God's love for us in Christ will just be off the charts, increasingly forever. That's why I say in heaven, or rather on the new earth, the first day is the best there ever was, and then each day is better than that one afterwards. Cool. Anyone else have a question? Okay, leading question. Christian, he can do it. <clears throat> All right. I gotta put if and do you think in this sentence. If someone says they think that homosexuality doesn't hurt them, and if not hurting anyone, do you think telling them about the side effects, the real side effects of homosexuality and lesbian causes in the human body is a good segue into how that, why they shouldn't commit that sin? That's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> nice work. So, yes, but. So here's what I mean. There, we, have, we have an arsenal of things that we can talk about. So, for example, I deliberately did not bring social sciences or medical sciences into this, but those are valid things to discuss. But what I'm trying to show, and what I think that in all of our evangelism would be that someone needs to know that their sin, yeah, there might be physiological consequences and sociological and psychological consequences, but the chief consequence of all is God's wrath against us. And so I would marshal those other ideas to serve to the point of getting to the need for Jesus. Really good question. 
figure. Thank you for thanking me. Okay. Um, I was about to try to find the name of the person, but I don't remember it. Um, what do you think about, I've heard this, this guy, and he has sort of his own idea of apologetics, in that he takes the verse that, like, like the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and says that we shouldn't use, like, evidence-based reasoning with people until they would sort of accept the fact that we can't know anything without God. Does that make sense? Or should I No, it does make sense. Going? Yeah. Uh, I, here's another way of saying that. For, so, so, for example, um, Romans 10 talks about how faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. We know that in sharing the gospel with somebody, and because the word of God is inspired, the spirit doesn't let the word return void. When we share the gospel with somebody, faith is transmitted through the gospel. So some people will say, yeah, don't share any evidence with somebody because the evidence itself doesn't save someone. Um, I am hesitant to have only one tool in my tool belt. I think there needs to be many tools. And I think that the Lord uses many different means. He uses the same gospel to save us all, but he saves us all different ways, if that makes sense. And so someone may need to know the legend, liar, lunatic, or Lord, you know, quad lemma deal, you know. So I appreciate where they're coming from. I wouldn't be as hard and fast on that. But I would rely on the Holy Spirit and not anything about me. What else? So one quick thing. If you're a youth kid, your parents are probably here and you should go home. So do that. Unless you text them and you ask, like, you want to stay so much later. Jonathan, what's your question for a friend? You don't have one? Okay. If you're a bear, you can't leave. Any other questions? Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have determined when and where each of us live, as the Apostle Paul preached in Acts 17, so that we would not only um, find you and really you finding us and saving us, but also that you've appointed us to live in this day and age. You didn't put us in a different era. You didn't put us in a different culture. You put us right here, right now. And it's true for such a time as this. I pray, Lord, that the, the, the joy of Jesus, the power of the gospel and its grace and humility, the love for your word would so uh, fill our souls that we would follow you, Lord, and we would be faithful and courageous in loving those who don't yet know you because there are people in this city that you're going to save, Lord. We believe that. And we pray, Lord, that you would use us to seek and save the lost. So Jesus... Build your church. Bless your church, we pray in Christ's name. And everyone said, amen. Thanks, guys. Good job.